a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're diving into a topic that I'm going to say I'm a bit embarrassed we haven't covered at this point. We're often talking about making a conscious effort for inclusion, and yet we haven't had a podcast conversation about birthing with a disabled body. And that's what we're going to dive into because there can be certain needs that need to be met as well as recognizing that you need to be seen as an individual, not just blanket statements fitting everybody. So to have this conversation, we have Lo Nigrosh. Let me tell you a little bit about Lo. She is a mom of two kids, age nine and five. She's a former Paralympian and came to her current passion of lactation care through her own intense struggle to breastfeed her first baby. She is the host of the podcast, The Milk Making Minutes, where she explores breastfeeding struggles and triumphs through the lens of systemic barriers. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation because while we talk about birthing with a disabled body, we also very much talk about being seen as an individual and looking at your personal circumstances and not falling into just certain categories and recognizing your needs as a parent, your baby's needs, and checking in what do you absolutely need instead of what maybe the system is telling you. So I'm excited for you to hear that conversation. Before we get to that, I just remind you that we've got a lot going on at the studio right now. So I'm so excited to share that we're adding to our on-demand library that by, I'm guessing, the end of February... Pretty much every workshop that we offer in person, we're going to be offering on demand so that you can take it on your schedule in case you can't come into the city, in case you don't want to, in case it's just not a possibility, in case our schedule doesn't work for you. So we're expanding our on-demand library. And then I have a big course that I'll be releasing. I'm calling it the Power Pack course that I'll be releasing hopefully also by around the end of February. So stay tuned for more on-demand things happening at the studio. But of course, we still have our live stream classes that you can take seven days a week. We have our in-studio classes. So for your pre and postnatal needs, we got you covered. 
Then if you have a moment, head over to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and just grab your free downloadable. So it's called the five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. And as you always hear me say, it's like your cheat sheet for when you might be uncomfortable. And I know you can't always make it into class, but I want you to have the resources that if something bothers you physically, that we can support you through that. Of course, don't forget, you can always do these exercises postpartum. They fit both situations. Last thing I want to remind you that we have another teacher training coming up. So by the time this gets released, we are likely heading right into our January, February teacher training that's online. And then we've got two in-person one. We have one in New York City at the Prenatal Yoga Center for March and April, but then we're also going to be at Kaya Yoga in Connecticut for April, May. And then we're going to have our postnatal teacher training at the end of May. Usually it's in the summer. I'm going to push it up a little bit this year. So lots of good things. If you are a yoga teacher looking to enhance your skills and really wanting to support the perinatal community, again, we've got you covered. I'm, I love teaching that training. It has evolved so beautifully over the years that it gets me excited to see people take this into their own communities and continue to support the perinatal community. All right. The last thing I want to say is just thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of our community. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Lo. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Mosmo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Mosmo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Mosmo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Mosmo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Mosmo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Lo. How are you? I'm so good, Deb. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. When you reached out about coming onto the podcast and I saw what you wanted to talk about, I thought, absolutely, I have yet to dive down this topic. So I'm really excited that you're going to share your story. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to learn a little bit about you and how you got into birth work. Yeah. So I think like many of us, I got into birth work through my own intense experiences. <laughs> I did not expect to be thrown for such a loop, um, both in birth and specifically in lactation. Um, uh, specific, you know, with both of my children, I think uh, it was really intense, but specifically with my first son. Mm -hmm. And I knew, um, I became a doula first, uh, but I knew, you know, when I was sitting with the lactation consultant that had the most impact on me, when I walked into her office that first time, I asked her, how do you become a lactation consultant in IBCLC? Because I knew I was going to do it. That was nine years ago. Oh. And I finally just sat for the IBCLC exam last month. Congratulations. That's <laughs> so, a huge path. That's yeah. a huge exam. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's taken a long time to get there, but I became a, a doula, a childbirth educator, and a CLC first, and a peer, a peer counselor as well. So I've been working towards it slowly and steadily. Um, but it was really through my own intense struggle, both through birth and breastfeeding, that that kind of led me down that path. So I'm excited to hear more about your story. So when you reached out to me talking about being disabled and giving birth, we haven't covered that at all. In fact, I haven't really encountered that a lot. So this is really intriguing, especially we really try to have an inclusive community. And that includes people who have a different type of body so and different experience. So will you share a little bit about your disability and how it impacted your pregnancy and your first birth? Yeah. Yeah. I um, am sort of a a podcast fanatic. I love podcasts. And when I was um, pregnant, I listened to tons of birth and pregnancy podcasts. And I continue to listen to lots of podcasts in that field because of the work I do. And I just don't hear lots. I, I don't hear hardly anything about people with disabled bodies. And we hear a lot about people with bigger bodies, um, you know, and in the lactation field, we're starting to hear a lot about people with various sized, um, breasts or chests, um, non-binary people. I think that's amazing that we, we are starting to be a lot more inclusive. And, you know, now that I'm a mom of two and I homeschool my kids, um, you know, I'm trying to check out literature that is really inclusive for them. And I have my physical disability is I wear a prosthetic leg and I was born without my left foot. So I have a congenital disability of my left foot and I've always been disabled. And it's interesting because even in children's literature, when somebody is represented as being disabled, they're always in a wheelchair mm-hmm. in children's literature. You do not see a wide variety of disability. Um, represented um, in children's literature. And it's starting to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is actually my prosthetist. He became a prosthetist after we met. <laughs> and um, I walked into his office uh, a couple months ago and there was a like a Barbie doll that had a prosthetic leg. And really? I started to cry because... I had never seen anything like that. And he said, oh, yeah, we keep these for, you know, new patients who are children so that we can give them to them, you know, on one of their first visits. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what would that have been like Yeah, to see something like that when I was a kid? It just didn't exist. That's fascinating. Um, I, I didn't I did hear about the Barbie. I've actually heard about that, but I didn't think about through the lens of a child, why don't, why isn't there something representing me? So that is just so wonderful. And I'm excited to hear about your story. So having, is it your foot or up to your knee? Where, what's, where's the prosthetic? Yeah. So if you, my, my residual limbs, so my real leg, uh, it, it's pretty long. I'm missing about two or three inches in length. Um, so I can actually even walk without my prosthetic leg, although I have quite a limp. And you being a body worker, yoga instructor, you know that if I were to do that, that very regularly. Of, yeah, in your back, right, and your hips, that and your cause, spine. And, yeah. Exactly. That would cause a lot of problems. Um, 
And it's actually quite uncomfortable, especially outdoors or on uneven surfaces. Um, I have an ankle even. Um, so I can, I can kind of wiggle my residual limb. And I do have both my tibia and my fibula. I used to think I did not have my fibula, but, um, I think recently, like within the last maybe 10 years, I've discovered I do have it, <laughs> but I don't have any of the muscular development. So my left leg is way skinnier than mm-hmm. my right. Um, and then my prosthetic leg, in order for it to function, it actually goes almost all the way up to my knee. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when I do yoga or when I do stretching or trying to do squats, um, it can kind of get in the way because it is kind of high. And so mm-hmm. it's a little, it, you know, movement can be a little difficult, but I've always been very athletic. I was in the Paralympics myself. Um, wow. uh, I was a Paralympic athlete. Uh, from 2003 through 2006, um, I played for the United States sitting volleyball team and I played, um, sports all growing up. So I always viewed myself. In fact, I never even used the word disabled to describe myself until I was in my twenties and I started hanging out with other disabled athletes because it wasn't a word that my parents used to describe me. And I didn't grow up around other disabled people. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I started being around other disabled people that I learned to even embrace that term Mm -hmm. and recognize that, oh yeah, that is what I am. And it's okay to use that term and take it on because it doesn't mean I'm less than, it just means that I do have different needs than an able-bodied person. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to recognize that and, and address it. And ask for different needs and different accommodations when I need them. Well, that's a perfect segue into talking about your pregnancy and birth, about what needs were met or not met and how your care provider and your hospital and your team supported the needs that you that you needed. So do you want to talk about how that played out for your pregnancy and your first birth? Because I know we're going to talk about your first and second. Yeah. So this totally threw me for a loop. And I think this is why being able to have individualized care is so critical. And having blanket policies um, that don't allow for wiggle room can really get in the way. Whether you are a person in a disabled body or a bigger body, um, or just a body, you know, maybe you have diabetes, you know, it doesn't, or gestational diabetes, which I ended up having with my first, and which is what brought me to feeling way more disabled than what I thought. Because what happened was, um, I, I did not anticipate my disability being as impactful as, as what it was, but I was under midwifery care under a hospital. I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes and it ended up needing to be controlled with insulin. Because of this at the hospital where I was, um, the policy was I had to be induced at 39 weeks by 39 weeks. They actually wanted, go ahead. No, oh, I'm just listening. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted to induce me by 39 weeks. And 
They actually, it was right around Christmas time. My due date was December 26th, 2013. And they wanted to induce me a little earlier, but because it was right around Christmas time, I was actually able to get it right to my due date. Um, and, um, I was not ready. I mean, I had not experienced a single contraction. I had not experienced a single sign of readiness. Um, you know, I had been doing some cervical checks. There was no dilation. I mean, just nothing. I had, my body was not showing that it was ready to deliver my son. And so, um, we go in for the induction and I kept asking my care providers, is, I know there's a hospital policy saying I need to be induced because of this gestational diabetes diagnosis, but is my baby okay? Is everything showing that my baby is okay? Because I was going in for non-stress tests twice a week um, and they, they were saying, yes, your your baby looks great. And I was saying, is everything showing that I am okay? And they said, yes, everything is showing you are okay. Well, then why do I need to be induced? And they were saying, well, that's just the policy. So what ended up happening was I had a three-day induction. We started out with the lowest intervention, um, you know, cervical sweeps, misoprol, you know, going up to Pitocin, which required saline, constant saline. Well, the saline caused me to swell. And my prosthetic is very tight. I have an inner liner, which is a little um, thicker. It's a little wider than the, the outer, stronger, harder shelled prosthetic. And it stays on by friction. So I started to swell so badly that I was my prosthetic was too tight. So by day three of the induction, I had to take it off, which meant I now can't move during labor, which meant I opted for the epidural, which I didn't want to do, which, you know, Pitocin labor is already more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I've lost my ability to have movement for coping. Um. And so now I'm opting for the epidural. I did end up being able to deliver vaginally, but there was nobody in the hospital who could help me deal with the swelling. And my husband, who's supposed to be just there as my partner, he was in prosthetic school at the time. He's like asking for materials that people are trying to gather from different floors. Was he trying to, try to make to a help. prosthetic for you like right on the spot, like a... He, he was trying to deal with the swelling. Okay. So he, nobody else knew what to do. There was no other provider who could manage the swelling. And so he's now using his practitioner brain to try to deal with it instead of just being the father of the baby mm-hmm. being delivered. Um, and so I deliver my son. I looked like a blueberry by the end of the delivery. And um, I did have a vaginal delivery. I could not wear my prosthetic for a week after his birthday. 
which meant for the first week of my son's life, I was way more disabled than I typically am because I rely on my prosthetic to be mobile. Mm -hmm. And so here I am not only dealing with having just had a baby, the trauma of that, but now, you know, having to carry my son, having to navigate breastfeeding and trying to get into positions without my prosthetic, having to try to get to the bathroom, which is already hard enough. Um, I remember taking him to his first prosthetic appointment. He was born in December and I live in Connecticut and there was ice on the ground. And I don't have anything else to help me get around. I don't have a chair. Um, it didn't make sense to try to use crutches when I'm trying to carry a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so luckily I can walk without my prosthetic and I literally tied a snow boot tight around my skinny little residual limb and I limped into the prosthetic office carrying my baby in the car seat um, at, to his first appointment at the pediatrician's office. And that was all a result of a blanket policy, which looked at me not as an individual, but looked at statistics, which said I was required to be induced. Oh, that must have been so hard. That must have been so hard. And you did all the right things. Like I know, I'm sure in your childbirth education class and ours, we say the same thing. Is the parent okay? Is the baby okay? Can we have more time? And you did that. You said, is the baby okay? Yeah. Is the parent okay? Yeah. Yeah. Can I have more time? No. And it's really, um, it's not just disheartening, but it really takes the, your agency away of this is, you know, I have autonomy over my body and agency over my body and you were not able to do so. Mm -hmm. And I could not have anticipated. I, I did not know my disability well enough to, to know that that would have happened. And I don't, I don't expect my providers to have known that that could have happened either. But I do expect providers to be able to sit down and say, okay, yes, you're looking great. Your baby's looking great. Let's give you a little bit more time. And it's frustrating that there are hospital policies that prevent people from being able to do that. Mm. Um, and I recognize, you know, I feel very thankful. I had a, I had a midwife who was with me for the entire three days because she happened to be the one who, um, was meeting me for the induction and then was on call for that weekend. So mm-hmm. she was there the entire time. I very, I feel very thankful. I feel very thankful that I had that continuity of care. Um, and also I know that there are very good practitioners who are stuck within really crappy systems Mm -hmm. and we need them there within those systems because otherwise people get worse care. Yeah. And I really do feel like her hands were tied in that, within that system, but we have to change those systems then. You know, we can't continue to allow hospitals to tie practitioners hands when they know that the policy is bad. Well, I want to talk about your second birth because I know that things were different. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, let's hear how things were adjusted for your second experience. We'll be right back. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. 
the ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Okay, so baby number two. So here you are pregnant again, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. you wanted to uh, not do the same thing. You, you, know, you don't want to repeat the same first experience. So did you seek out a different hospital or a different birth team for a second, or how did you go about making sure to the best of one's ability, because face it, birth is never a guarantee, you know, how we plan it, right. that things would be different, would unfold differently. Yeah. So one of my big messages is that birth setting really matters. And if you have, if a person really has strong feelings about how they want their birth to turn out, there are no guarantees. But if you can be in a setting where people are going to treat you as an individual, it is way more likely that every decision is going to, is going to, like you're going, you're going to come to each decision. You're going to talk about it as a team and you're going to take the next right step at each decision point. Whereas if you're in a setting where that's not going to be the case, you're much more likely to fall into that cascade of inter- interventions, which was the case for me, which affected me for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So for the second time around, I did decide we had moved, but even if I had not moved, um, I would have um, decided to go for a home birth, which is what I did the second time. And I don't think that that is going to be what everybody goes for. Um, but I, di- I did really want to be in a situation in which every decision was going to be discussed with me. And that I was going to be the primary decision maker, not somebody else. And I really felt like home birth was going to be the best setting for me to be the primary decision maker Mm -hmm. and for me to be the person who was completely, as you said, autonomous over my body. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I chose a home birth midwife who worked with two other midwives. And I think in my case, that ended up being really important because first of all, when I hired this home birth midwife, I live in Massachusetts. Her name is Joyce Kimball. And she said to me, um, I am not a home birth cowboy. And I really liked that because we were still concerned about, you know, we live in a pretty rural area and 
we were concerned. Well, what happens if we do need to transfer? Because we did not want home birth at all costs. If we needed a hospital, we wanted to go. And I really liked that she used that term, that if we needed to transfer, we would. Um, And that really helped my husband too. Who Do you mind if I just pause for one second and say to those that are like, what do they mean by that? Because I get what you're saying. Um, (laughs) Because, and I'm sure you've seen this too in the birth world. And I mean this with respect to all people's choices, but some midwives will, how do I say it being diplomatic? The risk taking varies from midwife to Mm -hmm. midwife. And especially when we look in the home birth world, I have witnessed some choices that I'm like, that's interesting. And then I've heard stories of some choices. Again, it's, it's analyzing the risk and some midwives are willing to take much bigger risks than others. How do you think that was? How do you think that summarized it? Uh, yeah, yeah, she Feel knew free to that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good. She knew that we did not want to take lots of big risks that if we were very willing to make a transfer, if that's what needed to happen for my safety or for my baby's safety. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that summarizes that very well. That <laughs> Just because I keep hearing you know, some people like, what they mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't want to be in the wild west of home birth. We just wanted to feel safe and in charge. Yeah. Um, but we needed the guidance of a medical professional. Um, and, uh, and that's what they gave us. But what ended up happening was, um, I went to 41 six. <laughs> um, so, you know, every birth is different. We can't always gauge what would have happened the first time, but what, ha- by what happened the second time. But knowing that I went to 41 six, <laughs> The fact that I had to be induced at 39 weeks with the first one, that's kind of a good indication that I probably would have gone for a while mm-hmm. um, with that first. And it's no wonder it took three days um, for that first induction. So tell me a little so bit I went to about 41. Your, yeah. I was just excited to hear more about your second birth. So 41 and six, and was your body naturally moving into labor at that point? Well, what happened was I went in for a um an ultrasound at 416 and I thought um you know no one said anything to me at the ultrasound but the doctor had called um Joyce the midwife and she said I need to come over and talk with you. So she came over and talked with me and at that point there had been a big reduction in um the percentages of size and so she was very concerned about intrauterine growth restriction, IUGR. And so we had this conversation. I'm crying at the kitchen table. It's dinner time. And she said to me, look, I think if you don't go into labor by tomorrow morning, that you should probably make a transfer for an induction. <laughs> um, she was just concerned at how big of a drop-off in percentages there had been. And, you know, when you're at 41 six. Um, you do start to get a little bit concerned about nutrient transfer in the placenta. And she was just saying, I, I think your baby could, would probably be better off with the nutrients of your breast milk than, than what she's, we didn't know the gender, but what your baby is getting from the placenta. And we talked about it and we had a discussion and, and I agreed. And I said, okay, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I agreed very sadly. Um, and I asked her to do a cervical sweep. Um, 
but we weren't sure even if I went into labor, if, if, um, delivering at home was the best choice because if my baby was struggling, um, to get the nutrients that she needed, she might have, she might need interventions after the birth anyway. And so we kind of decided, let's just kind of take a wait and see approach, whether or not we're actually going to have a home birth. So we go, um, I think that one funny thing about home birth is the midwife spends so much time with you. You have these long appointments, but they never actually see your vagina (laughs) until you're giving birth. So when we do the cervical sweep, I felt very shy about, I was like, oh, do I pull my pants down now? Which when you're in a hospital care, they're looking at your vagina all the time. So it just becomes second nature. So it was kind of funny. I felt so intimate with my home birth midwife, yet it was very weird to pull down my pants at that moment. (laughs) Um, So she does the cervical sweep and I did go into labor that night. And what was important about having the, the two other midwives that she worked with was when I went into labor and they came over maybe about six hours later, we were unsure about whether or not I was going to do the hospital transfer um, because of the concern for the baby's health. And this is what I think is so beautiful about working as a team to make decisions. Joyce was still kind of on the fence and it was this other amazing midwife, Rachel Blessington. She said, Joyce, low looks great, and the baby looks great. We've been monitoring both of them. The baby sounds great. Heart rate is good. Like, you know, movement seems great so far. We're close to a, to a couple of hospitals. We're not too far away. You know, if we needed to do a transfer after the birth, we could. But, you know, if low wants to lay... To, to do this labor at home, I think, and this delivery at home, I think, you know, let's, let's, let's go ahead. Let's, let's have this home birth as, as she's planned. And I think that's such a beautiful example of the, of the contrast between what happened in my first delivery, which was me constantly having to fight for that individualized care. And coming back to, am I okay? Is my baby okay? And, you know, this question of, are we okay? And then that second midwife bringing it back to, hey, they're okay. We know what the statistics say, but so far, everything is showing us they're okay. So let's proceed Mm. as planned. And if we need to make a different choice down the line, we'll make a different choice. So did you end up staying at home the whole time? I did. I stayed at home the whole time. Um, I, I labored for about 12 hours total. Um, I had my baby. Uh, we had just moved into that, to, to our home that we're in now. It's a log cabin on, on five acres. And I was staring out at the woods behind our house. And I thought I was loose as a goose standing up, <laughs> but, um, I had to, oh, this is another interesting part. I stood Almost the entire 12 hour labor. I thought I would be someone who was on the yoga ball, who got in the water, who, um, you know, was on hands and knees. I thought I would be someone who utilized a bunch of different movement positions and no, I needed to stand. Hmm. And I couldn't have done that if I couldn't wear my prosthetic. There, there's, there's just no way I, I'm not comfortable standing for long periods of time without my leg on. 
Um, so it was critical for me to be able to wear my prosthetic leg yeah. during labor, so, at least for this baby. Yeah. So that must have changed because you didn't have the constant fluids that you had with Pitocin and an epidural. That must have changed your postpartum recovery significantly because, as you know, all that edema. So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So it definitely, just being at home, I think, I just think that was way different. You don't have people waking you up all the time, um, checking your blood pressure, checking the baby, telling you you can't sleep with your baby. Um, and so, and breastfeeding went a lot better with my second than my first. That's a whole nother story. So breastfeeding was going a lot better. Um, and so my postpartum recovery was better. I did hemorrhage. Um, I, I had a pretty, a pretty large hemorrhage with my second, not so much that I needed a transfer. They were monitoring my hemoglobin levels and I did not need um, a blood transfusion. So I was able to stay at home. So I was tired, but definitely, um, I was able to take it easy and not need to move around, um, a lot and just be at home and be cozy. And of course, the home birth midwives were bringing me meals and cooking me lots of yummy food and, and just being at home and cozy made that, uh, recovery from the tiredness a lot better mm-hmm. and um and yeah being able to use my leg even was a big part of being able the 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 recovery from the second time just felt even though i had hemorrhaged i felt way better way earlier that's great. Oh, I'm so happy that you had the birth that you had envisioned. So talk to me a little bit about if someone has a disability how would you suggest they open communication about their needs prior to their birth? Yeah, I think um, it's really hard to anticipate what someone's needs are going to be because you've never been through it before. And so you don't know how pregnancy is going to impact your disability, but I think you can gauge how much a person is going to be flexible in their care with you just by how willing they are to listen to you. So if they're not really willing to have long conversations with you, if they're not willing to listen to how you're feeling about the intersection of your disability and your pregnancy, if they're not asking you questions about how your disability has impacted you or um, to ask questions about how your disability impacts your daily life or what you're wondering about when it comes to your disability or pregnancy, or if they have no questions in general about what it might be for you in the birth room, then I think that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's more of a general attitude of the practitioner than um, how they might be meeting your needs specifically. Because until you're there, you might not know what comes up. But if they're not willing to be flexible, then there's no way that they're going to be able to meet your needs when they need to be flexible in the moment. What about interviewing care providers and asking them, have you worked with different 
bodies of different shapes and needs and able-bodied and, and disabled bodies. Do you think a lot of care providers have that kind of experience? I think a lot of care providers do not have that kind of experience. And I think um, a lot of care providers are kind of set in their ways about um, how they approach patients. And so if they themselves are a person who is in a marginalized group, it might be a lot easier to have them think outside the box when it comes to your care. Um, and so even starting with that could be a good place to start. Um, and then just, just asking them, you know, about what their experience is. So what, what types of different bodies have you worked with? And, um, and, and think a little bit outside the box. So what is your experience with people who have had, you know, mental illness? What's your experience with people? Do you have trauma informed? Are you trauma informed? What's your trauma informed care? Then because the intersection of disability and trauma can sometimes be, um, similar, you know, because people who live in disabled bodies sometimes have to deal with more trauma than people who are in able, who are able-bodied. Um, and so sometimes that can cross over. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. wondering also if those that do have a certain disability, they want to then think about what might I need for support for different birthing positions? What might I need for different laboring positions? And then talking to the care provider and the hospital saying, I may need extra support moving in some way or supporting myself and then seeing if they can arrange or at least be mindful of helping that person into different positions, maybe have, I'm just kind of throwing this out there, more staff if somebody needs additional help, say they can't move as easily. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's great. And I also think um, doing something like taking prenatal yoga would be really important for that so that you can get accustomed to moving into different positions um, with the pregnant body that you have, especially mm-hmm. as your body grows um, and working with someone who has the time to kind of help you figure that out yeah. and hiring a doula um, because hospital staff, they're so busy doing the things they need to do um, for charting and taking care of multiple patients at a time that sometimes they're not um, always available to provide the extra intense care. But if you are at all able to hire a doula who can meet with you in that prenatal time to figure out what is it that you're going to need in the moment, then you'll feel way more comfortable with that person being able to help you when it's time for labor if you're going to need extra support. Absolutely. I'm in New York City where it's all teaching hospitals and we rarely have the same nurse for that long. Like they're covering different rooms, they have different shifts, but I'm just thinking that if someone really, you know, has unique needs, hopefully the hospital could step up and help. 
So, yeah. And I find people like, like I always, I've taken yoga on and off throughout the years and I took prenatal yoga when I was pregnant. And even if they're not an expert in disability, I find people like yoga teachers like yourself, they are really good at looking at something like that and being like, Oh, that's interesting. Why well, that's where we use moving? props. We use props yeah. a lot and we've had disabled bodies in class and we've had bigger bodies and we have obviously pregnant bellies and that's where we get really creative with using our props. We've used blocks, bolsters, even chairs if we need. And then it kept, it's kind of like a game like, all right, so here's this, here's the pose, here's the situation. Let's, let's look at everything and find a way that it works for everyone and comfortably and safely. So I, I actually like that personally, but. I yeah. like to help people. I want to, you know, I don't want to be like, this is how we do it. This is the only way to do it. Cause that's not going to be inclusive to everyone. Not everyone. Has, and even, even bodies that may look similar, they still have very different histories and different movement patterns. So exactly. You're really good at piecing that together. Yeah. I, I, that's where I get my joy out of. So we're going to take another break. When we come back, what is one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? We'll be right back. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So we're back. So you have a lot of experience as a doula, as a IBCLC, as a childbirth educator, as a parent. So what is coming to your brain that you want to leave people with? So I always want people to know that whatever's happening for them, whatever's happening for you listening, whether you're struggling with baby feeding, whether your birth went the way you wanted to or not, that the miracles, you know, whether it's a birth miracle or whether it's a breastfeeding miracle or a baby feeding miracle really are the miracles you feel them to be. And the struggles are not your fault, that there are so many systemic barriers that get in the way. And so if your birth didn't go the way you really wanted, or if baby feeding is not going the way you envisioned, you are still a fantastic parent and you are doing an amazing job by virtue of listening to this podcast. We know (laughs) you're doing an amazing job (laughs) and because you're trying your hardest. And so um, I just... That's just how I want every person to walk away from hearing any story I tell, from any podcast I put out, you know, from any reel I put on Instagram. I just want people to know that um, there, there are so many challenges that get in the way. We are doing so much in isolation these days and not even just because of the pandemic. Um you know, our ancestors had anywhere between seven and 14 primary caregivers of their babies. And now it's like two, maybe two parents yeah. <laughs> um, raising children. And so you're doing a great job. 
I, you know, it might not feel like it from day to day, but you are doing an amazing job and it might not feel like it every day, but you are. Oh, that was nice. I I liked hearing that myself today. So thank you. (laughs) Where can people find your work? So, um, I am host of a podcast called The Milk Making Minutes, where we explore breastfeeding triumphs and struggles through the lens of systemic barriers. So you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. And then if um, anyone needs help with breastfeeding or baby feeding, IBCLCs do a lot more than just breastfeeding. So any breastfeeding struggles, I can be reached at quabinbirthservices.com. And I'm sure you can put that in the show notes. Absolutely. It's strange. It's a strange word. <laughs> it started out local. And then I'm low Nigrash on Instagram. Well, this has been really, really joyful. I've so enjoyed getting a chance to connect with you and hear your stories. So thank you for being so open and vulnerable and sharing. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.